Hi, I'm Pastor Kenneth Olusanya of the Vivify Ministries, and it is my joy that your heart is awakened to the finished works of Christ with such powerful simplicity. Are you ready? All right, here we go. All right, okay, someone is asking, if she's not anonymous, Sam Lore, aka Grace Clark, is asking, what happens to people that have never heard about Jesus, not even once, before they die? Is, it, is this possible? That's one. And then if yes, would they still go to hell? We'll say that again. She's asking, what happens to people that never heard about Jesus, not even once, before they died? Is this possible that like this would happen to people? Mm. Then secondly, would they still go to hell? <laughs> That's an interesting question. So um, I think before we even start with the questions, I want to just put this out there. Maybe you can give, and I want everyone actually to give their feedback on this. I think so far, um, if I'm not mistaken, you mentioned that we have about 50 questions coming mm -hmm. and we have about one and a half hour to trash this, maybe one, even one hour. It's almost impossible to go through all these questions. So I want you to tell me, quality over quantity or quantity over quality what i mean is should i go deep should i explain should i unwrap should i unravel or i should just skip through and point in the right direction and go to as many questions as possible so i want to hear from your from the chats just let me know if it's quality quantity just let me know if it's quality let me know all right let's vote let's vote let's vote Quality, quality. Quality. Unravel. Well, <laughs> Somebody said that's a hard question. Yeah, it is. I think we can strike a balance between both, to be fair. Sure. <laughs> sure. I'm being realistic. That's why I'm saying this. If it's quantity, I'll go through this, point you to this sermon, point you to that. If it is quality, I will take my time. More, at least, at least it. Two minute, three minute answer. Okay, two minutes is the quality. Maybe five. I, looking at my my history. <laughs> if you know, you know. <laughs> if you know, you know. <laughs> I'm just telling you. So I just to help me be conscious. Um. All right. So what are people saying? Okay. So we have more votes for quality, quality. than quantity. More we quality have, than quantity. We have some people that are sitting on defense. Mm. Oliver Twist you fall down. Sisters. If you're on the you mm. All right. So I think quality is it, right? So yeah. if, if we can breeze through 20 questions today, that's fine. Uh, but I don't like that carryover thing. That carryover spirit is not nice. Yeah, just, that's All right, let's do this. Um, so the first question is this. Um, for those of you who didn't hear, I I I hear I'm here, myself. Let me just move this right now. No, it's okay. So um, the first question is, if you, uh, what happens to those who never heard the gospel throughout their life? Is that possible? Yes, it is very possible. Um, right now, there are at least uh, maybe two to 4,000, it's an estimate, two to 4,000 people groups that have been unreached. And this is not people. It's not 2,000 to 4,000 people. It's people groups. We're talking ethnicities. We're talking tribes. We're talking people that have 
encounter to hear that Jesus is the Christ who died for your sins and was risen for your justice. They don't have that narrative of the gospel preached to them. And thankfully, more missionaries are being deployed. There's more penetration into the regions. But uh, yes, it is very possible. And that's, that's the scary part and the urgency that comes with the gospel, that there are people who never actually hear this message spelt out that way. Um, the question on would they go to hell, I can't say for sure, right? Because are you going to heaven or hell? <laughs> I hope that you go to heaven and, and, and you know, because you believe in Jesus. Um, but for these people, here's the way God relates and interacts with such people. Um, I, I'm going to talk about the exceptions, the miraculous, and I'll talk to you about the general rule. There are exceptions where, in, and I've heard the stories countlessly, and it's still happening till today where someone in the village, maybe it's a shaman or their Ifa priest or whoever it is, someone has a dream repeatedly, sees angels, sees someone appear to them. Uh, does, this, does this people group in, uh, I think, a very remote place in Indonesia where there are a lot of monks and all of that. And the, this person had a dream, uh, appeared that, you know, there was someone who died and everyone in the, in the village was healed. Had the dream again, someone died uh, and everyone was healed because of his death. Um, and then other people in the village said to have the same dreams. They thought it was a plague. Why is everyone dreaming the same thing? And because of that, they realized that there was some supreme being, there was a God who wanted to heal their land and forgive them of their transgressions because of the death. So, so they came to a knowledge of a saving God through dreams. And when some missionaries came to those places and witnessed to them, like, oh, so that is the name of this person. We didn't know it was Jesus, but we know him and we found him miraculously. Um, and then the gospel was now established and taught properly. There are those examples. But in principle, it's what Romans chapter two says. Romans chapter two if I'll just go there quickly so that you see it for yourself. It's a very powerful scripture. And, and I thank God for the scripture. If not, we'll just run into a lot of confusion about it. Uh, see? Yeah, so I'm going to read from verse, uh, should be verse 12. Yeah, I'll read from verse 12. So this is what it says. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. He's talking about Gentiles. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. Talking about the Jews. Verse, six, verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, right? Maybe those who have been unreached. Uh, when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these not having having not the law are a law unto themselves. Are you seeing the the progression? So those who have never even believed uh, or known this God, if they do the things that are according to the law, they become a law unto themselves. Verse fifteen, which show the work of the law written in their heart. It's coming to fix it tomorrow. Yeah. 
also bear witness and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another so their thoughts their conscience can either vindicate them or or, or just or you know accuse them verse 16 in the day when god shall judge the secrets of men by jesus christ according to my gospel and it goes on and it goes on and it goes on the the summary of this and i'm going to reiterate what he he mentioned in in chapter one as well is that those who didn't have a law um, and practice the things that are in the law and have a, a, a culture, they have a, a uh, what's it called? They have a system with them. They, they, they are regulated by that system. Their consciences, um, just that moral compass that God has embedded in every human being. It, it's something that everyone has. And Romans 1, you know, Paul writes and says that in verse uh, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Verse 19 says, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it to them for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. He's saying that those who walk in unrighteousness can evidently see the fingerprints and the footprints of God in creation. So creation is God's biggest evangelist, even to those who walk in unrighteousness. Do you understand? It's saying that you can tell there is a supreme being. And when it comes to salvation, let me be honest with you. Let me be honest with you. Because of God's rich mercy, you might not always, you might notice that there are people you come to talk to who might not know all the big words or all the intricacies of the gospel. They might not know soteriology or justification or propitiation or all those big words and fancy words you like to show up with. But they know there was someone who took their place, died for them so they can be forgiven. And that's enough. I'm just telling you, based on your interaction, there are people who just believe Jesus died and was risen and that's enough and they're saved. All right, there's a place of discipleship so that we can address falsehood and grow better in understanding what we have received. But the barest minimum in faith in God and his Christ, just like it was even in the Old Testament, many of them didn't even know. David, who wrote about Jesus, did not know the name of Jesus. He, he didn't know. He just knew there was someone who was going to come to save the people from their sins. And that in, in itself was enough. So, He's saying that, look, at the end of the day, even if you are not preached or reached with the gospel, everyone has a knowledge of God within them, you know. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I want to believe that God is merciful. While we see a case um, of Cornelius, where Cornelius was a devout man, this was someone who was morally upright. Still, Peter had to go to him to establish the gospel, preach the gospel to him. You know, I still find that the preaching of the gospel is super important in this. But if somehow people can recognize there is a God who created all things uh, and not just some pantheistic God who exists in all things, but there is a supreme monotheistic uh, idea of a God. Um, when, when, they, when they believe in this God, when they live according to him, um, I believe God in his mercy is able to preserve such people. Um, he's able to somehow 
uh, when it comes to faith, what I'm trying to say is when it comes to faith, the barest minimum knowledge about faith in God and his ability to forgive um, is many times enough to vindicate the people. When you look at the saints of old, when you think about what's counted as righteousness for them in the old times, I'll give Abraham as an example. There was a promise and Abraham believed the promise and it was counted to him for righteousness, right? He believed the promise. David also believed in the Messiah, someone who will come from his lineage, from the throne of David, who would sit on the throne and rule the world and rule the nation of, 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 of Israel and all the world. And the people who were with them may not have had all those details. They just knew there was some Messiah. They just knew there was a God who cared for them. So I believe that somehow God is able to uh, reconcile the barest minimum knowledge that we have uh, and, and that these people have and, and that can afford them forgiveness of their sins. There, there's more to this question, but I can always tell you this. The preaching of the gospel will always be urgent. It will always be necessary. Even a Paul who was blinded by a light when Jesus appeared to him on the road of Damascus did not get saved just that instant. Someone had to go to minister to him, Ananias, and preach to him for him to be saved. So at the end of the day, the preaching of the gospel is immensely urgent. And people who don't get to believe the message of the gospel will not be saved. And that's the reality that we have. Um, It's a tricky thing. It's a very sad thing, but also gives us such a strong onus and responsibility to share as much as we can. There's more to this, but I hope this suffices with the scriptures in Romans. Thank you so much. All right. Yeah, that was quality. All right, thank you so much, Vicky. I hope that answers that person's question. We have two more questions. Sorry, we have one question that two people asked. Sorry, I just want to be sure that you guys can hear me. It's, um, no, press it again. There we go. It's All right. right. So one, um, two people asked one particular question. People that are asking live questions, get ready, you're going up next. So um, they're asking, this is Damilola and Bethel. Sorry, I mistook Bethel for Grace Clark earlier. Yeah. Sorry about that. So um, they're asking, I'm, I understand sinful nature and being born a sinner, but how do I explain to people that say it's unfair that they did nothing personally, like they are not Adam or Eve, and they did not even ask to be born, so they do not need the love of Jesus. How do I defend the idea of the gospel and the nature of sin to them? Okay, so if I get you clearly, people who did feel it unfair that they didn't do anything wrong, mm-hmm. but somehow they're born in sin mm-hmm. and there's a need for a gospel. Mm-hmm. Life is unfair. <laughs> Life is unfair. I mean, if you're born, just to use things according to the flesh, if you're born into a family of immense poverty, sadly, you will struggle. Like, you're not going to be born into a mansion. You will struggle from the slums. And if there's nothing done to bring you out, you will stay there all your life. Mm. Life is not fair. The problem is this, the issue is not why is it fair or why is it not fair. The problem, the issue is, is there a problem? 
Yes. Is there a solution? Yes. Will you go for that solution? That's where you decide. So let me use this example uh, just to read Romans. Romans is such a beautiful book. Romans chapter five. Yeah. Beautiful. From verse 12. I'll read 12 to 14. Just to give us a background. Wherefore, as by one man sin, uh, and as by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for all for that all have sinned, right? Mm -hmm. So one man introduced sin because one man was a prototype for every single person that will come after. Do you understand? Uh, verse 13: until for until the law, sin was in the world. But sin was not imputed where there was no law. So he's just saying that sin was, even before the law of Moses came, sin was there, but it was not imputed against you. What the law does is to say, ah, this is you. This is the law. You have defaulted. Now there's a problem. But before the law, there was sin, but still it was not imputed. Verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come? The new and second and final Adam. So what this is saying is that you didn't have to sin like Adam sinned. You didn't have to disobey. Just being born, David said, I was born in, in iniquity. In iniquity was I conceived. And that's the reality of everyone. And even if you have a child and you let that child do what the child wants to do, you don't you just leave that child. You see that the child tends in a direction of decadence, a, 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 of disobedient behavior naturally. And that's just how the nature of man is before Christ. Mm -hmm. And so back to my initial question, it's not a problem of uh, is life fair or unfair? Is being born a sin and not being born is unfair or fair? The problem is, do you see that there is a problem? Do you see that you are born into a problem? If it's a family poverty, there is a problem. Is there a solution? Yes. Will you go for the solution? That is the real question to anyone who's asking that question. So I would, I would to God that you would, you would seek the solution, receive the solution to solve the problem, right? Mm -hmm. The problem will be finished, <laughs> but the solution, solution day. So you must always go for the solution to solve those problems. Uh, that's, that's what I'll say to answer that question. Thank you so much, Vicky. I couldn't resist noticing how cute your pigeon was. <laughs> Come on. Come on. Pigeon is Okay. Wow. Okay. No, I agree with you. Oh, okay. I had a priest over my head. <laughs> 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 All right. I, I, I'm, sure, <laughs> I'm sure that answers the question really well. Um, I'm not seeing any live question, my people. Um, they can so, their mics and ask. So instead of chat, I think some people might want to. Yeah, I had asked if anyone asked, so they would signify. Oh, no, raise nobody's hands. Raised. No one has raised ah, their hand okay. yet. Yeah, but I've missed your Hi, time. Some, someone's hand is up. Can you hear me? Okay, someone's hand is up. Yeah. Okay, okay, great. It's great. Madeline, mm -hmm. sorry. Don't be angry. <laughs> okay, Um, please go ahead. Hi, Pastor Kenneth. Hi, Pastor Chisholm. Um, this is Bethel. Or Tamilari. Okay. Oh, you can hear me. Hi, okay. So my question has to do with arranged marriage. I want to know if 
can we say that it is doctrinal or at the time that's in the old testament it was strictly a cultural thing and so i'm asking because even though like for isaac and rebecca now um people went ahead to like look for the servant of um, abraham went to look for isaac's wife and all of that but then in the end they asked rebecca if she would go with with the man and she said she would go so i know that in this like now knowing how like god works with me and with us god works with he chooses with us not necessarily for us but beyond like our own will i know that he can also work in line with our circumstances and turn it around for our good like um i know this is like a separate example but something like joseph joseph did not ask to be sold into slavery but it ended up being something that was needed and ended up being for the glory of God at the end. So would you recommend arranged marriage in this time? Like if the parties involved don't mind, you know, like it's so stress-free. Parents just find wife or husband mm-hmm. and maybe the guy is godly, he's fine. And he mm-hmm. checks all the boxes. It's, I mean, it's arranged marriage, but then you meet the person that you're interested so would you say that is a doctrinal thing or something that can follow in this time and age? That's such a brilliant question. Thank you for asking, Bethel. Okay, if we did, if our parents did arrange marriage, will we marry? It depends. Yeah, the parents knew each other before. <laughs> it depends. It depends. <laughs> I, I, I see. Let. I, I, first of all, I hope you're good, Bethel. Hope you're great. I I I love that question because um I'm I'm funny enough, people might not realize how biased I am to this question. But let me tell you the truth. <laughs> you know, one culture that does this very well is the Indian culture. Um, a lot of the marriages are arranged and the men are treated like royalty. So the women need to be able to have I, I've seen marriages that before you can even reach a man, the woman's family must be willing to provide a car for the man. They'll pay dowry just for the man. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. I think it's a king and more. <laughs> a king and more. Yeah. <laughs> ah, oh my. You should have okay. I'll leave it. Uh, but the point is this, uh, you know, statistically statistically a lot, lot of arranged marriages especially in that course success is not ending in the, in the marriages that were sought out individually um but here's the reason why because of a sense of duty rather than this sense of emotional love so they go for duty and emotions follow suit versus some people who just, I love this person. There are butterflies in my tummy. I feel so nice about you. And then you now decide to build. Ah, okay, you know what? Let me put my mind to stay here. Let me not be, you know, faithful. You know, that, that's where a lot of those things, uh, you know, end people in, you know, put people in a lot of trouble. Um, so, yes, I think uh, be, at, at the foundational part of arranged marriage, there is a sense of duty 
there's a sense of family involved. Mm -hmm. um, it's easier because you just simply remember, ah, you know, you're talking about, uh, you know, Priyanka who was in your school and was a good girl and she, she might be a good match for you. She's a doctor now and you're a lawyer. Perfect. You know, and you have to be in that engineer. So you just know that the caliber of person you're marrying is, is just someone who is great career-wise. That, that's what a lot of matching is done for that. Um, but I would say this, while it has its pros, it also has its cons. Um, because it, it, you have to define what attractive looks like for you. Are you just attracted to um, the person's career progress are you attracted to how they look? You know, I think beyond that, there's more, there has to be more doctrinal uh, and, and spiritual values that are, that are emphasized, right? For example, if, you, if I was going to marry someone, I don't want someone that was just thrown at me. I want to see someone that I've, I've had a friendship with. I've grown to know what their values are. I've grown to know what their doctrine is. And that in itself becomes attractive to me for marriage versus your career path or your physical look. Do you understand? So it has its pros, it has its cons. In the biblical days, I'm glad that you said that with Isaac and Rebecca, it was, that was not necessarily an arranged marriage. In fact, I, that was not an arranged marriage. This was a man who, I mean, I wish he could have, you know, he couldn't have gone himself because, you know, he was kinging. Uh, <laughs> so he sent the servant but when he sent the servant he was like you you're going in my stead you're my ambassador and and i'm going to see through your eyes but this is these are my requirements abraham gave the guy the requirements she must be this she must be that she must be this the servant now went to put his own extra requirements out of wisdom he said look the woman who is able to give me drink and is hospitable to me and my animals my camels that i brought with me that is the woman and the exact person who fulfilled that, prop, uh, that that description was the person he said yes. And then they had conversations with the family. So it's not necessarily an arranged marriage. It was more seeking out. But I find that arranged marriages can work, especially if the, both families do due diligence to understanding the fundamental values that these people have. And if, sometimes it clicks instantly. The attraction is there. Sometimes it grows. But whatever the case is, um, it's not a doctrinal teaching to say, you know, uh, arranged marriage. In fact, we have, we might even argue for the opposite of that. Um, but arranged marriages do work. I there are, there are also examples where marriages were arranged. I believe with Abraham and Sarah, it was an arranged situation, just looking at their history and how she is sort of his half-sister. Um, and then, yeah, just looking at how these things are, you, you can tell that both situations can work it just depends on the due diligence and the commitment given to to building those relationships so it's a doctrinal now but can you work yes thank you thank you very much for that answer yeah. i hope that answers your question bethel um if you need any other clarification please let us know yes please um since we're on the topic of marriage i'll just bundle some questions okay. people have here on marriage awesome. so one um, I think that's she as I'm asking. I like that these questions are not anonymous. <laughs> I really do. Okay. So she's asking that since we already talked about Abraham marrying his half-sister, Sarah, would you say that that had like negative... I'm hearing myself. 
I don't have any bogeys to jump out so <laughs> so would you say that had negative consequences mm-hmm. like intermarriage between extended families and was it wrong okay that's one and someone else is asking a question on marriage that after marriage is lost to the sin like that was the question so okay can we can we take them separately separate. so i don't yeah okay Fair yeah so I'll, awesome I'll for you. thank you great thank you so on the issue of abraham and sarah marrying each other um and and he, her being his half sister or yeah not step sister half sister like uh in the, in this sense like you a cousin um that's what it is um in those days for example let me just put it out there how did the world come to be from abel and seth so from Cain and Seth, I beg your pardon. So we had Cain and Abel. Abel was kicked out, sadly. And Seth came on the picture. So you had Cain and Seth. How did the world get populated from Cain and Seth? Adam and Eve had more children. They had daughters. And guess what happens? <laughs> Seth and Cain had to know these daughters to multiply, right? And that happened over a period of time. And from there, that was encouraged because that's the only way you could have spread. And so during that time of creation, that was great. And then by the time more families expanded and communities started to form, um, you know, even after the time of the flood, where after Noah's uh, flood had happened, and you know, Noah's family came together to, to be fruitful. You know, funny enough, Noah was given that mandate like Adam was given to be fruitful and multiply. And as that is continued to expand, you are still in a pre-mosaic era where the law was not given, where there was still a need to be fruitful to multiply even further. So in that time, it was oh, it was great. It was fine. Um, of course, as you, you know, people argue about the whole Abraham saying she's my sister, she's not my wife. Um, he he was he was not false, but he was lying. There's a difference. When you are saying something in order to deceive a person, you are lying. But when you say facts about something, right? Um, maybe something that's just not true, you are false, but you're not necessarily lying. If you say, oh, it is 7.15, but it is 7.30, it's false, but you're not trying to lie if you're not trying to lie. Does that make sense? So that's another conversation. But the point is when Moses, Moses came on the scene, he wanted to establish you know, the laws and, and, and act as God on the earth and started to put those boundaries and say, you know, a man should not marry anyone from his family. It is forbidden. It is not lawful. And those uh, requirements started to continue. Do you understand? So, um, yeah, it's it's it it was for the purpose of being fruitful and multiply that such arrangements were allowed, but not anymore. Mm-hmm. That's the summary of that. Mm-hmm. Well, the concluding part of her question is: like, for instance, we see Moses in Niggas long as Adam did, and like that. Okay. Like, yeah. Yeah. So the consequences. Yes. Yeah. So. Um, Bio- biologically and genetically, there are consequences for uh, intra-familial marriages. 
uh, that means when you marry within the family or you you have relations sexual relations with the family um a lot of um heart diseases medically speaking this is statistics heart diseases down syndrome um uh, some other terminal uh you know terminally potential diseases happen with this i don't know why i really can't say this judgment for for incest i don't know but um it's almost interesting how they are setting um sins that have physical consequences even homosexuality um was what started the aids epidemic right um which you know romans one kind of hints that there'll be judgments for that kind of thing but this is just me saying that likewise incest when when people who have incestuous relationships have and procreate children um the chances that that child will have some deficiency some terminal illness is very high i think as high as 70 percent so um yeah there are consequences for such arrangements medically speaking thank you so much for sharing um so still on questions on marriage here yes, someone is asking when marriage comes in is lost no longer a sin there are restrictions or movements or movies to watch and sexual activities because of loss like do these things change after marriage and um for instance when i watch these movies and have sexual thoughts towards my wife am i still to abstain and i can't get this person's question because there was a time in school where a lecturer was talking to us about something and then he went and said that he and his wife watch porn and uh, that's how they learn adventure and different things you know so can you skip to that yeah so i have a very firm view on this for very good reason i believe that when jesus said this and pay attention when jesus was speaking to the pharisees and the other people his disciples that were there and he said you know um you know talking about the law of moses and eye for an eye and everything and he gets to the part where he says in fact um you don't just commit adultery when you commit adultery like if you look lustfully upon a woman you have committed adultery with her in your heart he was talking to married men that's why the term adultery was used right and i want to bring that in the context of this when you start to watch movies or read books or even stumble up upon pornography and this incites lusts arousal within you you cannot confidently say that that was an arousal towards your partner you were aroused by something else and you are trying to redirect that for someone else mm -hmm. if that in itself you had already looked lustfully upon someone else jesus has us as already told you that you are committing adultery with that person in your heart mm -hmm. and and that's why if you are even considering it by any chance by any measure of watching porn with your wife to spice things to spice things that is the spice of the devil <laughs> the spice. and he's trying to reinvent what sexual intimacy should look like 
as opposed he wants to make you think that so i say this that lust remains lost term acceptable as a married person in fact there's a higher expectation that jesus brought to it to say even even just look lustfully you're at risk of committing adultery do you understand in your heart and, and so that's that's my response to that thank you so much yeah. for that response pk that was really profound um does anyone have any life questions before i continue to slide the link questions any life yeah, questions that are not there? Um, um, please. I like how Chiazam um, speaks in third person, but okay. Chiazam, um, please ask your question. Okay, it was okay. Let me read from PK. Can you hear me, PK? Yes, I can. Okay, so um towards the question I asked before. So I noticed that like in the lifespan of people from after the floor, that's from Noah's time down towards Abraham's time, there was a drastic um, reduction in the age, like where from 800, the lifespan. To like yeah, lifespan of people but to like 500 and all that. So I was wondering, could that be as a result of interfamily, like the extended family marriage that they were indulging in? There is no direct link between that, uh, you know, and and the lifespan being reduced. If anything, it might would seem that, um, by the way, one of the other, other factors um, or major factors that influences the lifespan of a thing is habitat, ecosystem. Where that thing belongs, does it have environmental factors that can sustain the life beyond what it normally is? And even today, while we are all human beings, across the world um we don't have the same life expectation i know you've, you've heard that that before the life expectation of people in certain places is higher than more places there are places where it's expected you live up to 100 you can become a centenarian you can i think there's a place in italy where they have the highest numbers of centenarians in the world people who live beyond 100 and 100 and I think maximum so far is like 120 or so. But people live that long compared to some places where the life expectancy is 60 years. Do you understand? That's almost half of that. So I think as the year and as the age and era has evolved from the time of Mitsusala 936 or 93, yeah. So even Noah, who, um, Adam, who lived 900 years, till so you go down and down, I think that. The habitat has a strong effect on that. Some people argue that when Jesus says, uh, not Jesus, when the Lord God says that my spirit will not tarry with man for more than, you know, 120 years, that that's, uh, that was him saying it's reducing the lifespan of man now. He made a mistake to have man live this long. It's arguable, um, but I believe more in that context was more specific to the flood and how long he will tire with man before the flood came. Um, so, but yeah, I believe that there's a huge factor. It, it's a huge decline, but just with the example I've given within just, you know, a few years within this century, um, the 20th and 21st century, there's some places where the expectancy, life expectancy is half of other places in the world. Uh, so if you trace it back thousands and thousands of years, it's just possible that that's just that's just the decadence of sin. That's what sin does. Sin and death, when it creeps upon a place, it leads to decadence. It doesn't get better. 
Um, but we're getting to a place where Christ will come to change all of that, where sin and death will be swallowed up in victory and immortality will take up mortality, basically. So to answer your question, yeah, I think there's no direct, I don't see a direct consequence between uh, the lifespan and those in, intramarital. I don't think it's, it should be punishment um, in that regard to reduce. I, I, I mean, even with medical studies, I've not seen that the lifespan of a person reduces because of that. But there are diseases, there are infections introduced uh, genetically as a result, right? So that, that's, that's what I would say. You might be onto something, but I can't, it would be conjecture, it would be speculation to say so, basically. Yeah. Thank you for answering, Fiki. Yeah. I hope that answers your question, Chiazan. Okay. Um, yeah, so, thank you. All right, thank you. She said it answers her question. Okay. Um, so Bethel and Dami have like similar so questions. questions. Okay. So they're asking about divorce, remarriage, and separation. Okay. So first, is separation wrong biblically? Like they are not divorced, but the parents are separated for one reason or the other. Is that wrong okay. biblically? Then second, if your if the they might not be parents, but they are a couple, right? Um, parents in this context, like married couple, sorry, married couple, okay. married couple. Um, then the second question was on divorce and remarriage. Okay. So, if a partner says, Oh, I want to divorce you, and then the other partner desires to remarry, mm. what then happens? I feel like she was asking based on what Jesus spoke about on marriage and divorce, okay. So to answer the first one, separation, is separation acceptable and allowed? By all means, yes. By all means, yes. Only if the reason behind the separation is valid. Right? And separation for me, by definition, is a temporary time set apart from your partner to maybe in, in a corporate uh, terminology, I would say leave of absence. <laughs> yeah, We're not just, you know, from days off where you take an extended leave to reevaluate. Sometimes it's for the person's safety, for this person's mental health and well-being. Um, sometimes it is, yeah, it's because of some irreconcilable differences, which I don't believe really exist. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's, I think in some cases it is healthy. There are cases where it is unhealthy, where people just because of arrogance, because of hubris, because of, um, yeah, because of the lack of ability to resolve conflicts the right way. Um, and people who don't seek wise counsel just go to do their own thing to prove a point and separate. For those reasons, it's it's unbiblical. We have to lead by love. We have to lead with forgiveness. We have to lead with patience. Tolerance is actually a fruit of the spirit. Like to tolerate people, to endure long uh, in patience is a fruit of the spirit. Um, but if it becomes abusive, if, if physically, emotionally, verbally, sexually, uh, if it becomes, uh, if it leads to domestic violence, all of that things related to that, it not only should result in separation, but legal action, I believe. Um, so that's super important. Uh, on the side of divorce and remarriage, um, this is where it gets a bit dicey. Um, 
in principle, Jesus mentioned this. He said, let no one, all the Lord has joined together, let no one do what puts asunder, right? Mm -hmm. Not even the couple themselves. Let no one separate what God has joined together. It's like a, a mental picture I can just paint for you is if you have Siamese twins who are joined in one, if you decide to rip them apart, and I'm not talking about three surgery, you just rip them apart, you'll end up killing both of them. And, and the picture in spiritual terms is kind of how Christ and the church became one. If you separate church from Christ, it doesn't look like love anymore. It's a disaster. And so I think many people just act in the flesh. They don't realize the spiritual implications of being joined to someone in marriage. It is a beautiful thing, but it's also a very spiritual concept and institution where two become one in God's eyes. And that's why Moses allowed that to happen because the people were hardened. Divorce was only allowed as a result of the people's hardness. It, ideally, and was never God's idea or intention and should never stand um so divorce is wrong the 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 uh picture we see um divorce in itself is not god's idea there are cases where it's the only option and i will not i will not act like i don't know that there are cases where look at this point separation is not, will not even do it just divorce right and that's that's one part and i was going to say something i can't remember right now but yeah, when it comes to divorce, it's it's a terrible, you know, dangerous thing to do. It's it's hurtful. It's it's a it's a lot, really. But when you talk about remarriage and remarrying, there's something that um I think it was it was Paul that used the illustration, maybe Romans seven, where he said that uh anyone who is married is bound to a law, but if one part dies. They are what? They are excused from the law. Mm -hmm. He was using the picture to represent that those who die and are dead to sin, right, or are dead to, to the law, are free from the contract of the law to live in grace. That was, that was a summary of the picture. So once there is a death involved, the law does not hold anymore. In the case of marriage, that's the case. Do you understand? Where we were married to law, but since we died to the law, we are freed from that law. Do you understand? And he used that example. So in the cases of death, right, um, it's not necessarily a divorce. If one partner dies, that law that binds you is gone. And so you can legally remarry. Do you understand? That's a, that's a case where it's, it's very easy to remarry if you, if you choose to remarry anyways. Um, the rate of remarriage for ladies is very comparatively low to men. Um, ladies many times have, uh, once they have their kids especially, have that affinity to what they once had. Uh, and, and yeah, and they are able to manage their desires and, and whatever it is. But, you know, Paul says if there's any time you cannot manage the desires, just remarry, right? But in the context where there is no death, and this is just based on your feelings, like a lot of, permit me to say, Hollywood celebrities do, statistically in, in Las Vegas, at, in Los Angeles, the divorce rate is 50%, like half of marriages survive, basically, and it's increasingly higher in the, the Hollywood space. 
people just change, you know, underwear as they change their boyfriends and partners. Um, but what that does is it's, it's, Jesus calls it adultery. Jesus refers to it as, as adultery, where the person who you are joined to uh, initially is still alive. The law still binds you in God's eyes. If you go to another person and have sexual relations with that person, you end up committing adultery as well. Do you understand? Um, the example that Jesus gave where he said that, you know, if you put, I, I'm trying to remember the scripture now. I think it's somewhere in Matthew 17 or so. If you marry, if you divorce, and except for the case of infidelity, uh, it seemed like there was some permission to, to, to remarry because through unfaithfulness, there is a break in the contract. There's a breach in the contract uh, and, and all of that. Um, I wish we could get into it and study the scriptures in detail. But what I would say about this is, and I know people who have done this, even ministers of God who their partners are still alive. For example, I'll use a typical example. W.F. Kumi, his wife passed away, right? And because she passed away, the law binding them in marriage was broken. So he was, he had every moral and legal right to remarry. Do you understand? Do you realize that even according to the law, if, you know, before you can even have a divorce, there has to be concrete reason. And if you've not done that the right way, if you, if you marry someone else while there's still an existing contract, mm. it's punishable by law. They would, they would imprison you. You know, even in Nigeria, yes, they would imprison you. I know it's not as common. Sometimes people just overlook it, but according to the law, that's what it is. Um, the point of this is that if the person who you are divorcing is still married, that's why marriage is such a sensitive thing. Like if you're going into it, you need to be one hundred percent sure. <laughs> and confident that this is the, this is your person this is the person you want to do life with because ending that is it's it's there's a spiritual implication there's a legal implication um and i will not encourage it yes i understand even in the case of infidelity where someone is unfaithful to you it i mean that now gives you know credits like imagine the person that's been unfaithful is now you so do you get, it has encouraged bad behavior. Imagine you're unfaithful, you now break up, you now go to another relationship, you're unfaithful. Then it allows you to switch partners because you have the right of way because of your unfaithfulness. That's in itself another sin. Do you understand? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so what I'll just say by principle is if you're going to get married, no one should put asunder what God has joined together. Not even you. Mm-hmm. That's, that's how I'll summarize it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That was very well-rounded response i'll I'll just add this to that that if if there's a case like what i mentioned where it's really irreconcilable and there are issues that cannot be resolved and you know it's divorced but don't remarry stay unmarried (laughs) stay unmarried if it's a case where you think you can just put up with the person sadly that that, that's the thing I, that's what i would encourage personally um personally maybe my knowledge is still growing in this or maybe it's it's been influenced heavily by what i see in scripture but 
that if, if you encourage a culture where when things become irreconcilable, you divorce and you remarry. Um, and by the way, once you have a divorce, the tendency of having another divorce is 50%. So you are very more likely to divorce in the next one again. Um, so I just want to recommend it for logical, common sense reasoning. And also in terms of what I believe the concept of marriage was meant to achieve. Yeah. Thank you so much for those answers, Vicky. Yeah. I think something we also need to get used to is accepting the difficult answers. Yeah. Like sometimes when we ask questions, we want to hear something that down so that like kind of, kind of is easy for us to yeah, handle. Exactly. But like when you ask questions like this, you should get ready for the genuine perspective of the word of God. If God says no. Would you keep trying to look for loopholes? What if it's unfair? What if, like, don't mm -hmm. build your life and expectations of your life on exceptions. You get, don't plan your future. Yeah, if, especially if you're not married, don't start to anticipate this future where your spouse will cheat on you and then you have to divorce and remarry. You can order your life. It doesn't have to happen. That's right. All right. So um, before I take the live question, there are some questions very closely related to our teaching series. And I'll just go back to that, but I'll bunch them up for because they're very related um so a person is asking that okay the, the first um question she asks her name is favor favor she says will the holy spirit leave a person after continuous sinning without repentance and a close question to sin as well is even after being saved do the consequences of your sin catch up with you okay hmm. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll still try to separate those two questions. Um, and thank you for asking. Who asked the second one? I know Favor. Anonymous for the second one. <laughs> All right, but uh, Favor, if you're on the call, I, I want you to let me know if this helps answer your question. So on the case of if someone repeatedly sins uh, unrepentantly, this, the Holy Spirit eventually just leave and pack out. I want to borrow biblical language here. And I'm telling you the book of First John, which is why we read it uh, last year um, through October and November, is because it's the true acid test for what the believer looks like. It's the mirror which you can stand behind and look in and say, look, by this, if I look like what is in this reflection, this mirror of First John, then I am in good, <laughs> and, uh, it, it, the testament that I'm truly a believer. Um, you know, someone once said something that if you struggle with sin, it's a good sign. Because if you are not born again, truly born again, you will not struggle. Mm. If you did not have the Holy Spirit within you, you will not struggle against this thing that is inconsistent with your character. You would live and relish in it rather than struggle with it. So uh, I, I am I'm not remiss to the fact that people, um, even when they come to faith, have habits, have addictions, have strongholds, have bad behavior and lifestyles that um, kind of carried over, not because they are not saved, but the soul is not saved. It's being saved. There is a process of sanctification where your, your mindset, your belief about certain things starts to you know, evolve according to the word of God. Uh, but the Bible is clear. First John 3 um, tells us that anyone who is born of God, the seed of God remains in them and they will not make a practice of sinful living. I believe the context of sinful living 
is unrepentant, sinful living, right? Mm -hmm. there, there needs to be, yes, you might make mistakes, you might fall, you're not perfect. And, and John says it, if any man sins, they have an advocate, he reminds them. So at the end of the day, if it's not, if you fall time and time again, what you need is help to get, you know, to move on from that, to build from that, to be better. Um, but the Holy Spirit will not leave you in a time when you need him the most. And I've used this illustration that when we have fathers who care for us and parents and mothers who want to be there for us um, and we make mistakes and we're weak and we're tired. Imagine you're trekking on the journey and your child is tired, I can't go on anymore. You know, say, hey, you're lazy. I'm leaving you behind. You know, no human parent will do that. And when we think about God, we need to rate him more. Rate God more. Tell your neighbor, rate God more. Rate God more. Ah, he deserves your rating. Because God does not leave you. Neither does he forsake you. You know that scripture. He is an, he's an ever-present help in time of need. That is the God you serve. So in a time when you need him the most, when you are struggling is when he'll be present the most, if I would even use the most. But he's even more present in those in those situations if only you believe in him. And that's why I always tell people that great, the problem is not that grace is not available, but you have to put grace to work. Mm -hmm. Paul said, I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. And I did not take this grace in vain. You can take grace in vain if you don't use grace that is available. And so the problem is not that grace is not available, strength is not available, is that you're not taking advantage of it. You are not being conscious of it. You're not putting yourself in an environment where the grace can be put to use. Um, and so does the Holy Spirit leave you when you sin? No. If if there is consistent unrepentance when you sin and almost you enjoy the sin, it could be a pointer to the fact that maybe, maybe you're not really saved. Or maybe it's a case where Galatians 6 says someone who is overtaking in a fault. Or maybe it's also a case where um, someone is not put in the right community or is not taught the right you know, truth. There are people who still believe as a believer, you can sleep around and they didn't know. So there's the place of ignorance. If you know this is wrong, you truly know this is wrong. You will, and you are truly saved. The seed of God remains in you you will be repentant. If you're not, it's it's a question for you to ask. Have I, have I truly believed this gospel? It says, let them that name the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. You cannot believe in, in the thing that God came to save you from. It's, mm. it's not possible. You shouldn't. So while you might fall a thousand times, you should also get up a thousand times in repentance mm. and keep moving. Do you understand? That's, that's the picture I'm trying to paint for you. Um, but no, God doesn't leave you when you need him the most and second question which says um after being saved, after being saved the consequences of your sins still catch up absolutely the consequences of your sins after being saved did they catch up with you yes 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 it depends on what kind of consequence you're talking about if you're talking spiritual consequence consequences i beg your pardon there's a yes and no answer to the question it's a vertical spiritual okay. consequence which is between you and god absolutely not you are forgiven there is no condemnation in christ jesus if it's horizontal yes so 
and the context is this if you offend someone you sinned against someone and sadly they swore for you place the curse on you or there's diabol diabolical means involved vertically there can be spiritual consequences i'm telling you now because of of experiences i've seen do you understand and even just thinking about a ananias and, and safira for example where ananias made a mistake uh and lied actually against god and peter you know says and rebukes this guy this guy i believe was part of the church and most likely was saved i i want to believe that and then he he cursed this guy and this guy died there were spiritual consequences you know against him that meted out from peter to him um but also legal consequences if you're saved and you rob a bank or you kill and murder someone you will go you should go to jail if you come to me pastor kenneth i'm sorry i don't know what came over me i'll say my brother come i'll hug you i'll cry with you we'll pray together and then i'll call the police <laughs> i might i might not it depends on the time but you should you should serve time for the nonsense that you did i would encourage it i that's it if i'm going to replicate the justice of god i, I would i would encourage that that happens um, but yes, there are legal consequences. There are also spiritual consequences. There are emotional consequences for the things we do. If you are cheating on people, committing sin, um, there, are, there are consequences for it emotionally. If you are also maybe promiscuous, at one point, it might catch up with you. There might be an STD. And because you're born again, it doesn't mean you'll never fall sick or have contract an STI or STD. Do you understand? There are consequences for sin, but primarily before God, between God, there is forgiveness. So you might live all your life in prison, sadly, because you made committed some crime, but you're not going to serve time in an eternal prison. Uh, you will reign with the Lord forever. That's uh, that's basically what I'd say. Thank you so much for these answers, Piki. They're very, very holistic. And it, I think it also answers one of Faber's questions okay. on the link where she asked, um, if you're saved by yeah. Christ Jesus, can you still sin and what still happens? Mm. I think that answers it. But favor, if it doesn't or it something is not clear, yeah. please just let us know while we take Dolapo's question. Yeah, and if she asks that question about um, do we sin and everything, let me let me ex let me put it this way. Let me expand your the possibilities of God in your life. Eh? When John said in First John two, if any man sins, the key word if stuck out to me. He didn't say when any man sins. And that, in, in a sense, expanded the possibilities of God that you can live a life where God's seed remains in you, where you are truly born of God and you live according to God's standards. You know, I have seen people, I have seen people who you might in many ways call perfect by their lifestyle. It's consistent. Do they make? Do they have character flaws? Maybe they're just not the most patient people sometimes, or this or that, possibly. But in terms of putting into practice and being zealous for putting to practice the commandments of God, they are consistent. There's consistency in holiness and righteousness, and it gets better. But I want to expand your possibility. Don't I don't want to just carelessly say, "Oh, if you're a believer, yes, now you still sin. You still. I'm not going to do that to you." I'll use the phrase, if you sin, there's an advocate, but you don't have to be a believer and be sinning. 
the, the concept of salvation is that the body of sin was destroyed. Mm -hmm. The hold that sin had over you was destroyed. So now you can be a slave of righteousness and not given to sin. I want to put that balance there because I don't want to, by my words, even enslave you further by saying you, you, the expectation is that you keep sinning. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do that. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. okay. All right. Um, Dalapo, thank you for the answer, PK. Um, Dalapo, please, your question. Okay. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, PK. Um, the question Hello. is, is um, from Matthew 10, verse 19, about how, like, when they deliver you up, I was talking about, like, persecutions and all, that when they deliver, don't worry about what to say and how to speak. My question is that, is this like only in the context of persecution? Because I've heard some people say things like, oh, like even when you are trying to <laughs> evangelize or something like that, you can just go, right? Without actually yeah. appearing. Yeah, so I just wanted to know, is the context only for persecution? Very, very good question. If you're going with what Matthew 10, 19 says, it says that, you know, they will bring you before councils uh, and people who have matters judging us, you know, have to judge you for the work you're doing for the gospel. If, I, if I'm not mistaken, you know, people who deliver you, they'll scourge you, uh, you brought before governors and kings for my sake. And I've mentioned this before, just recently in a teaching. Um, yes, that will happen um there will be persecution and in those moments the lord will give you the things to say and there's evidence for this in the book of acts you see it explicitly you see where it says and peter filled with the spirit spoke he replied paul full of the spirit you know defends himself before the governors and and caesar and, and all of this so you see that this is god's assistance and help in those times of need so in the context here Yes, it is strictly, strictly persecution. It is not when you have a, an inter-school debate competition and you go, you say, the Lord will give me the things to say. If you like, don't prepare, you will fail. I've done it before and I failed. <laughs> I went to have debates with an Indian school thinking it's God that will move through me, will give me utterance. Oh boy, that failure was bad. The point, I'm, the point of this is, <laughs> we cannot use something like this that the context was clear and make it more generalistic do we have times where we are inspired sometimes when we are ministering to people evangelizing that we have the words to speak we god just moves through us yes those are the gifts of the spirits all trans gifts revelatory gifts god gives those to meet a need but when you put it in a place where there's no spiritual need, where it is, I, I mean, I believe God sometimes and many times can inspire you, can give you some wisdom, just like he gave Daniel and his friends in matters concerning governance, where supernaturally they're just wise enough to know certain things and do certain things and say certain things in certain ways. I believe that. But if you're going to go contextually and use the scripture, that's where the problem is. If you're going to use the scripture, for many things like that. I'd rather you use a scripture like Daniel to, to say that in some secular matters, the Lord can inspire you to interpret dreams or to give wise counsel. I'd rather you do that than use a scripture like this, which was clearly talking about persecution. 
I, I hope that's clear. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Yeah. It does. Okay. It does make sense. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much, PK. Um, because of time, we have less than 30 minutes by our allotted time. So if you have a live question, I would really like you to just keep your hands up so we know how to you know, navigate them and manage the time we have. But in the meantime, there are some questions we still have on the Slido link that have been upvoted and I also think we should answer in the moment. We'll try and answer as many as possible, okay? So just stick with us. Um, Bethel is asking, why did Jesus ask people not to tell others about the miracles? Was it so that they could focus on the message instead of miracles and so they don't hinder his mission? Mm. Is it so that they can focus on the words versus the miracles? Mm -hmm. um, so I'll give the example. In the case of Jairus's daughter, or the man with the withered hand who did not hear what anyways <laughs> oh, no. and the man that was healed blind eyes and and all these examples where jesus performed miracles and he tells these people i've asked this question myself as well why is like is the point not to be famous and in terms of being famous i mean the word the mission being famous that this is what the gospel can do the one who brings the gospel this is what he can do um, you think it's the exact opposite where you say, you know, tell everyone, go tell it on the mountains, over the hills and everywhere, you know, um, and he, he tells us, why didn't he tell a Samaritan woman, some, who was a very, one of the first Gentile evangelists, who says, come and see a man who knew everything about me, why didn't he stop her, and why did he accommodate the people that then came to see, you know, um the context vary right um is it because um such tellings could incite many times um such tellings incited arrogance and aggression from people of the opposition the pharisees and the jewish council um there was a lot of pushback was it that he was trying to preserve it for the right time till the time where you know, it will, the time will fully come. Um, it reminds me of the marriage feast in, in Cana, Cana and Garden, where Jesus was and the mother, his mother was like, please help us do something about this. She didn't tell him to turn water to wine. She just said, help us. <laughs> you know, you can't do something. You're that powerful. And that takes faith. I believe his mother was, she, if your mother believes in you that much, man, oh, that's beautiful. She believed that he can do whatever he could to mitigate that problem. And he did. But he said, why are you asking me this? My time has not yet come. And I think that everything Jesus did in terms of the miraculous was, was based on timeliness. Is it time for this to be known, to be announced, to be said? And in many cases, some of these people, because of their excitement, they still couldn't contain it. They still went about to talk about it. Do you understand? Um, but I don't believe, uh, in terms of the question you asked, is it because, um, how was it phrased? What was the question phrased? Is it because he wanted them, he to, wanted focus them to focus on the work? Uh, not, not exactly. Um, in the context of when he fed the 5,000, yes, there's a context where I'm feeding you, but I still want you to focus on more important things. But these miracles um, were testaments to him as Messiah. 
And so him telling not, them not to tell anyone. Um, I mean, this is the reason why many people came to him. In the book, when you read the book of Mark, you see that hundreds and hundreds of people came to him. Why did they come? Because they've heard what he could do. They've probably even seen what he could do. And, you know, there are times where many people will come and he would heal everyone and did not let anyone go without being healed. Mm. Do you understand? Um, so it's word of mouth. It's a word of mouth thing. Why does he say it many times? I believe it's just more about the timeliness. The timeliness. I think starting from the very first miracle that was accounted for, mm -hmm. he said, my time has not yet come. Mm -hmm. And... And I believe with just that miracle itself, that caused a lot of buzz, you know. And I think a lot of things was timely. In the three and a half years I was going to do ministry, things had to be on point and had to be on time. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the process in people's zeal, people, more people got blessed, thankfully. Mm -hmm. But in many ways, that also incited a lot of aggression from the opposition mm -hmm. uh, leading up to his death. Um, but yeah. I would say, I don't think it's just for people to not focus on the, on, on the miracles. At the end of the day, people who were healed and, and received healing from him, many of them adhered to the faith. One of them was Mary Magdalene, who was healed of demons and cured, and she started to follow the Messiah. And she, she continued in the doctrine of the Messiah. So um i think that that's what i say. I, I don't have all the answers but just top of my head that's what i can say would be the reason why he stopped people from sharing uh those things at those times thank you yeah. so much for sharing pk um bethel has other questions she has so many <laughs> questions and they are so profound so one more question she asks is in Mark 16, verse 12 to 14, okay. Jesus rebuked the disciples' hardness of heart and unbelief. What caused their hardness of heart? And what are practical ways to prevent this hardness in our own hearts today? So Mark 16, verse what, 12? 12 to 14. Okay. After that, he appeared in another form unto the two of them as they walked and went into the country. Then we went and told it unto the rest of the Never believe they them. All right. This this is possibly the, the case of the road to Emmaus, right? The mm -hmm. disciples on the road to Emmaus. Verse 13. And when they went and told, yeah, verse 14, afterward he appeared unto the eleven and they sat at meat and upbraided them with their belief and hardness of heart because they believed not which had seen him after he was reading. Yeah, so this was a case of this was a case of um, the example, even prior to the encounter with Thomas, where Thomas' own was, Thomas's own was very clear. This was someone who said, unless I touch his hand and, and feel his side, I will not believe. And do you realize, many people judge Thomas so much, but do you realize that that could have been the stance of the rest of the 11 or the rest of the 10? Do you understand? Just because this guy was not present at the time, mm. just singled him out, you know, but this was the unanimous vibe that they got. It was such that at, at that day, it was, it was the women that were waiting at the tomb because they believed the word, not the men. The disciples were not there. Jesus came to appear to them, but the women believed. So it's in the context of belief, the same way 
the guys on the road to Emmaus, and I'm glad that, you know, this narrative points them out. You see them in Luke chapter 24. Uh, these were guys who Jesus spoke to, who were disciples of him, but they were sorrowful. Even on that third day, they were sorrowful that ah, this one that said, he, you know, he did, you know, this man that said he will come to change our lives and save us from our sins and, you know, die. He's nowhere to be found. And they were mournful. And he rebuked them. What did he say? Oh, fools. And what? Slow of hearts to believe all that the prophets had said. And the same thing applies to these guys. It was their own belief to his resurrection, the, the sufferings and the glory of the Christ. Their own belief. They had chosen to walk by sight and not by faith. They had chosen to just you know, look at the sorrowful parts and not realize that there was a glory to follow. But the question is, why were there people such like Mary and Mary Magdalene and, and Salome and these people were present at the resurrection of Jesus, presently waiting? It, it shows that these ones had faith. They believed that the one who raised people from the dead could also rise from the dead. You know, and maybe it was fear that made these people disbelieve in that time. Maybe they were afraid for their lives and they didn't want anything to be done. Where is this Jesus? He's nowhere to be found. Maybe they thought it would be some glorious, you know, holographic appearance in the sky upon his resurrection rather than a low-key one. Um, for whatever reason, it was their unbelief, especially, especially in the resurrection of Jesus, that, that was recorded here. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what I would say. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, BK. Um, so, praise is asking. I've been believing, sorry, Pash is okay. asking. I've been asking for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but I've not been getting it. What do you think is the limiting factor? Okay. And I also like to bundle that question with people that are asking, can an unbeliever speak in tongues? Mm. And can a believer be demon-possessed? <laughs> okay, you remind me of the remaining two. I'll remind you. Thank you. Perspective. All right, but the first one. So, so you've been asking for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it's just not worked out for you. Uh man, that sucks. Uh, but I'm going to explain. Right. When you say you ask for the baptism of the Spirit, I don't think the baptism of the Spirit is something you ask for. And I would explain. I would explain because I have. I have the responsibility to do this, mm -hmm. right? And I want you to pay attention if you're listening. Many times, what a lot of people do, and I'm saying this because I've been there. I've, I was in a place where I felt out of place spiritually, where I felt there were more spiritual giants around me. There were people who were willing to, who were, who were able to do spiritual things. And I felt left behind. Um, and for that reason, I wanted the baptism of the spirit. I'm putting the baptism of the spirit in quotes. I wanted to speak in tongues. I wanted to prophesy because other people were doing it. And because I wanted to be able to show up, it wasn't, for me, it was a show of spiritual status. And I went to the chaplain's office. I can't forget. I went to the chaplain's office, 2013, uh, severally. I want the baptism of the spirit. I want, I'm not leaving your office until I get it. He said, I, I, I admire your courage, but let me pray with you. He was just very kind. He prayed with me. I went home and nothing happened. I came back the next day. I said, nothing happened, sir. He said, okay, let me pray with you again. <laughs> I went home, nothing happened. Uh, and I was just very troublesome. The point is this. I was not 
truly seeking after God. I was seeking after an idea of knowing God, something that made me look like I knew God. Um, and that's a bit dangerous. When you want to put the cart before the horse, you end up not having it right. And so when you talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I've explained this on, I think it was Sunday's, was this Sunday's teaching? Yes. First Corinthians 12 talks about this. It says that we've all been made, we've been all been, we've been baptized by one spirit into one body. To be baptized by one spirit into one body. And we've all been made to drink of one spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, the true understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is in one, in one word, it's called adoption. Mm-hmm. It's when you are immersed into the family of God. Mm-hmm. It's when you are brought into the family of Christ. That's the word, immersed, baptized. When you are brought into God's family by one spirit, that is the baptism. And then that happens upon salvation. Some people have the idea that when you believe, you know, you receive the Holy Spirit, but then you need to be baptized afresh by the Holy Spirit. Uh, while there are examples of it where people needed to be encouraged and prayed for, the norm is that if you receive the Spirit, you have everything that the Spirit has to offer in that moment. You have the seal of your election, you have the fruit of the Spirit, you have the gifts of the Spirit, all in one moment, the Spirit moves in. So if you believe in, in, in Jesus, you're not waiting for the Holy Spirit to come in. He, he brought you in because mm. you believed. That's the point. So it's not even you, him coming in, he brought you in and by, by and he came in to bring you in basically yeah. so but you know jesus um paul says in romans chapter 8 verse i think 10 says the one who does not have the spirit of christ does not belong to christ so if you don't have the spirit you're not even saved do you understand that so what i'll say is if you truly believe the gospel a lot of people have found who want to speak in tongues are not saved many many examples so when I find that is the issue and I'm praying for this person, leading the person to, to minister to the person, sometimes the spirit just, just says, what are you doing? You're not touching my own. That's, that's the, 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 the prompting I get. This is not my own. And that immediately that translates to me to saying, this person is not saved. Can we walk you through a discipleship? Can we help you understand this gospel first? If you don't understand the gospel and you're not saved, you cannot walk and perform you know, uh, and, and work out the gifts of the spirit. It's not possible. You cannot. Um, but to answer the question of the person that says, can a, an unbeliever speak in tongues? Yes, if you practice. <laughs> if you practice, you can speak in tongues. And, and it's false tongues anyways. Um, there are people I know who learned tongues from what people say. There's some people I know. If you go to Google now and search how to speak in tongues, you probably have manuals of people telling you what to say, Rada, Rodo, if you're hungry, and it's plantain, you want do, 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 do. If it's pepe, ata, rodo, I'm just making this up. Um, but yeah, I'll say it again. Don't put the cart before the horse. Believe in the gospel. Let God be your utmost desire. Receive the spirit of God, you know, when you believe in him. And you should... You should walk in the things of the spirit. There are times where someone might have to pray over you to stir up what is already within. And, but if you truly believe, I countlessly, I've seen people that I've witnessed to, whether on the streets or in administration, 
as I'm leading them to Christ. You know, I remember, funny enough, even on uh, this conference, Audacity Conference, where people were led to Christ. And after I pulled this guy apart in a conversation, we started to pray. This guy said to blast in tongues. First time ever. Believed. I didn't have to lay hands on him, nothing. Uh, I know a couple of people, even with me, when I started speaking in tongues, nobody laid hands on me. I just started speaking in tongues. You know, after I've been wanting it since, it just came one day. So um, I'll tell you to seek God, receive the gospel, believe in, in what he has offered you, and all the gifts, uh, you know, and package that he's brought by his spirit will come naturally and supernaturally to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's one more question in this. Three. Can a believer be possessed? Can a believer be possessed? I hope that answered your question, by the way, Prash. Um, I'm sure that shirt's for Precious. Mm-hmm. Um, can a believer be possessed? I, I mean, I've, I've given answers to this a couple of times. And my position still stands as... Yes, a believer can be possessed by the Spirit of God. <laughs> can, a, can a believer be possessed by a demon spirit? No, no. The narrative that Jesus gave was that if a man has his house cleansed of demon spirits, the demon will leave for a while. But if he finds that place empty again, he will gather seven even stronger spirits and reside there. And that's the case of people where you say, I am, you know, when Jesus wants to cast them out, they say, I'm legion for we are many. That was the case of someone who was probably delivered once and was empty, no habitation, no spirit filled him. And so this spirit came again. So the believer is not absent of a resident. Do you understand? The believer has the spirit of God within them. And God will not share his kingdom. This is his kingdom, by the way. He will not share his kingdom with the demon. Do you understand? You know, he cannot. You know, God's temple will not share space with idols. And so um, the believer will not and should not be possessed in principle. The believer can be oppressed. Possession is more of an internal uh, resident after. Uh, effect that translates outwardly but oppression is from external forces right the the believer can be terribly oppressed sadly we live in a world operated by the god of this world and his demons and he can oppress he can oppress here this is where a lot of the oppression happens yes he can inflict with 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 um, diseases he can inflict with health issues um but here primarily is where oppression starts, where your knowledge of the truth starts to shake, where your conviction starts to break, where he starts to deceive you, where he starts to make you feel like God doesn't love you. Um, that's that's a lot of the oppression that a lot of believers face. And there's more to it. But yeah, the oppression ideally can be counteracted with the true teaching of the word of God and mixing it with faith. Um there are, chan- there are times where demonic activity over a person's life need the authority that you have in God needs to be used to resolve and reverse those issues. Uh, a, an easy example of oppression could be, for example, a generational curse where, and these things happen spiritually. I'm, I'm telling you this now, generational curses are real. If someone proclaims something and they had some diabolical thing on your family and now you're, you're a believer, Sadly, some of those things, if not taken advantage of, can remain. But if you have 
the knowledge and the devil preys on ignorance by the way that's how he gets you if you're ignorant about things and you don't know that you have authority over certain things he will keep you enslaved but if you know that you have authority over this thing this thing cannot continue my family i rebuke it in the name of jesus it stops it will not continue my family it stops with me it will never go again it will never come back again this is this that's how oppression breaks that's how oppression very easily oppression can be dealt with um, but the word of God and the authority of the of the name of Jesus. All right, yeah, that's what I would say. Thank you, PK, for answering. I'm seeing some people are just raising their hands. Okay. And some of them have asked questions before. I want to try and make it fair yeah. for people that asked questions on Slido link even days ago and are anonymous. We have no idea who they are and we don't want to risk, you know, not turning to these questions because some of them are very, very sensitive. Okay. So um, someone is asking, why do Christians not understand that anxiety and uh, that anxiety and depression are a thing? Why do they make statements like, if you have Jesus, mm. you should be happy? Mm. So a follow-up question to that is, is it wrong to have down days? Like when you're exhausted and you're not in the mood, does that make me a bad person mm. or immature? As it that's, that's a solid question. Um in principle, I'll, I'll say what the reality is. I'll also bring a balance of what should be. Um, it's okay to not be okay. But don't stay that way. <laughs> it rhymes. But it's true. It's okay not to be okay. But don't stay that way. So there are times where you have down times. There are times where you'll be sorrowful. There will be times where you weep. There are times where you are anxious. There are times where you're worried, where you are not at peace. And it's okay to have those experiences. And just like how thoughts can come to your mind, where a thought comes into your mind, you had no control of, of what that thought did and how it came. But there is a control of what you do, how you respond to that thought, um, whether you choose to keep the thought or discard it. Similarly to the things you experience, it's okay to have those experiences. They happen, right? Whether it's deep sorrow, whether it's pain, confusion, it happens. But when you stay there, that's where you are going against what God's will for your life is. God's will for you is not that you worry or be anxious, but that's what you have, that the peace of God floods your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. God doesn't want you to stay sorrowful, but he wants you to rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Um, and when you see the persecutions that a lot of the people, uh, the apostles and disciples had, you see that what followed it was a response of joy from the place before Christ where they were persecuting even Jesus, not them. They ran away, they scattered, they were afraid. But post-resurrection, these are people who realized that the sufferings of Christ are now homestay. And their response to it should be rejoicing. We see Peter and John rejoicing. James encourages that when you suffer persecution, rejoice. Romans chapter 5 tells us that, you know, we stand in this grace and we also rejoice in the hopes of glory. And, you know, talks more about persecution and how we rejoice. The sufferings of now, nothing to compare to the glory that will be revealed. The point is this. While those feelings will come, you cannot let them stay that way. So your ability to respond quickly shows where your maturity is. Respond the right way quickly to those situations, to address those emotions, address those uh, feelings that you have. That's where true maturity is. 
Maturity is not that you will not experience them. Maturity talks about handling. Handling, um, basically. That's what I would say. So when you can, you know, when you are in trouble in big in a big mess and you're just at peace, like God, thank you. Because I will not dismay, because you are with me, you are for me, you are Jaira, you will provide. I'm not alone. That is where maturity is. That's where, rather than panicking and, and ranting and crying um, and not doing anything and staying in that situation and then leading to depression and, and a lot of anxiety, um, that's where maturity happens. But here's what I would say to balance it there are people who are prone to these things more than others. And I call it innate sens sensibility, right? I've, I've talked about so innate sensitivity. They're just people naturally. They're people who couldn't give two hoots about things. They just live their lives. And they're relatively more stable mentally and emotionally. But they're people where things get to them so deeply. Um, I think in those cases, you need a support, a very strong support system for yourself. Um, someone you can always talk to, pray with, to assist you. Um, this is just how you are. You know, you can't you can't necessarily change how deeply things get to you, but you can get the support systems to help you respond, not react or respond the right way when you're in these cases. So you don't have to. Anxiety doesn't always have to lead to to depression. Sadness doesn't always have to lead to depression or suicidal thoughts. You can stop it in its tracks before it escalates and it grows. Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So that's what I would encourage. If you need to talk to someone, if you need to go through therapy to resolve some of those underlying issues that are causing this anxiety, please, by all means, go for it. Um, um, supernaturally as well, I've seen cases where I know we, we want to treat anxiety disorders and, and, and things in that line with utmost care. But supernaturally, I have seen people who have been cured been cured from panic attacks, anxiety disorders um, by the power uh, of, of Jesus. So I want to bring the miraculous edge. Jesus can heal you. You don't have to live that way all your life. Um, just because you are passionate and are easily affected by things doesn't always mean you have to be, that's a lead to anxiety. Mm. Do you understand? Um, you can be healed from it if you have any anxiety disorder. You know, yeah. So in them going forward to seek help, yeah. would, would you say that it's okay to take antidepressants if joy is a fruit of our spirits? Yeah, so I mean, at the end of the day, when you, it's, it's in the same category with if you have a cold or you have a headache, would you take pain relievers? Would you, if you're going through menstrual cramps, would you believe the power of God or you take that uh, you know, painkiller. It's it's where the balance is. There, I mean, our first response as believers should be the supernatural before the natural. Mm -hmm. Should be that we believe God even in the smallest things. Mm. But, but sometimes, by by reason of what God has done through science, some of the medicine that we have is very helpful in solving these issues. Mm. And so, when you believe, just like funny enough, when Jesus deployed his disciples and even James when he says if there's anyone who is sick anoint them with oil when you anoint with oil you're not just rubbing oruro on someone's forehead they will also drink it because it has herbs and spices it is medicinal it's a medicinal oil and spice mm -hmm. and so that's kind of medicine and power 
in one moment, the prayer and the medicine. And all of this ends up in the health of that person. Mm -hmm. So if the therapist or doctor recommends, the clinical psychologist represent, recommends uh, antidepressants, it's okay. But I don't want you, the, the last thing you want to do is to be utterly dependent on these things for your joy. Mm -hmm. That's the only way you can be okay is if you take these things. Mm -hmm. And that should not be the case. And that's, that should spark up some holy discontentment to want to get better by the miraculous right thank you so much Peke, for those answers yeah uh someone was raising his hand okay he's still on the call so i'll take i, I really like for us to answer some of those very sensitive questions like you mentioned yes we would we would answer that okay but like these are two people that have not spoken at all okay today so we have hope and ayodeji ayodeji you dropped your hand i don't know if um, we have answered your question already but um okay did you have a mutual mic so i'd like um you to share your question and afterwards hope can share her question and because of time i would have to just go through the um some of the sensitive questions left so we wrap up we are not good on time anymore so um did you please your question all right um thank you <clears throat> i was about stepping out so um it was going to be a follow-up waiting for PK. Even PK. It was going to be a follow-up to the demon um or the possession question now. I mean follows that I asked that question. Um so I think just to give more context to it, so I of course I, I think I have the knowledge of not being able to be possessed by demon spirit if you have the spirit of God in your right. And that was why in the question I put kill believer by speaking in tongues. So um, to give a context to it, so say you are in a believer's meeting and you can clearly see someone speaking in tongues. Ideally, that should equate to the person being a believer. But then you can also discern demonical activity going on in such a person. I'm just trying to balance those two facts. I don't know if you get. So on one hand, this yeah, person is speaking in tongues, which we've established can be practiced <laughs> or learned. And on the other hand, and I mean that demonical expression could also be um, the spirit manifestation, which. I highly doubt, or I'm just trying to get balance to all of those perspectives and how you can help such a person. Okay. So I think that's a very good question. When you talk about um, those kinds of things, and funny enough, I have seen someone who was demon-possessed now, not oppressed, demon-possessed, and was speaking in tongues, right? And I just remember that even the, the lady in Acts 16 had a spirit of divination. She could prophesy by a false spirit. And I think some people can express certain gifts by false spirits as well. And that's why it says test every spirit. You know, that's what the, the instruction Paul gives is test every spirit. Um, that means discern every spirit, the source of everything that is said or done. In a, in a gathering like that, where someone is is um, oppressed and starts to behave a certain way when they are ministered to, um, if sometimes even believers 
um, who have been plagued in their mind in certain things or there are certain holds, um, those things can be broken and those things are broken by the power of God. Um, and yeah, it could be dramatic or not, but that's the case. If someone truly is, back to what I said, if someone truly is a believer, you cannot, by possession, I mean, you're not like those people you see in the scriptures where you are, you are, you are controlled, um, you are tossed to the fire one day, you are tossed to the water the next, you are acting like a lunatic, you know, in fact, that was the word the scriptures used to represent some of these people, they were lunatics, and that makes me say that a lot of people, at least from experience, a lot of people who you see are mad people, like mad people on the streets, are actually demon-possessed, facts, so um, yeah, I don't believe a true believer who believes the gospel has received the Holy Spirit will be possessed and controlled and manipulated that way um, like someone would who is an unbeliever. But they can be oppressed. Their knowledge can be attacked. They can have diabolical presence. There may be demonic activity in their affairs, but it's only externally, right? Yes, sadly, sometimes where someone who is a believer can look just as if they were actually demon-oppressed and demon-possessed because of the intensity of the oppression over their lives. And so one thing is that God breaks those things free by his power. He liberates people. People can live again strong, healthy lives free of the hold and attack of the enemy. The devil is roaming about looking for whom to devour and this is where the oppression comes whether you believe or not he's looking for whom to devour he's looking to some form of demonic oppression is also in the church where there's this disorder where there's conflict you know paul says we are not ignorant of his devices he comes to the church to cause uh division that's that's demonic oppression where he starts to affect your finances in supernatural ways where he starts to uh, affect your your marriage affect your health those can also be forms of oppression. I'm not saying every lack of finances or every decadence in health is demonic. I'm not saying that, but they can be demonically inspired. They can be done actively. And so we have to discern these activities by the spirit, dismantle them by the spirit as well. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. If there's any part that I didn't touch. Yes, yes, it does. I think I I just need to. So um, it does answer the question, and, but then it's and, mean that can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. I, I wanted to just point out something that I didn't mention. In the case where someone who is now maybe delivered for some oppression, a believer who has been delivered from some oppression, uh, the next step is education. A lot of the times where people are oppressed is because they didn't know, there was ignorance, there was a conflict in their mind, they wrestle. And so what you want to do is fortify their knowledge of God and their belief system, help them know that they have the authority over demons in this regard or that situation so that it doesn't happen again. If there's still ignorance, you've not filled the gap. If there's still uh yeah what i was there it, you're just about to repeat the oppression in due time so uh yeah that's what i'll say 
All right, thank you, PK. Last week's so how you can help them. Thank you very much. All right, yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for your question, Ayodichi. Um, Hope, could you please go with your question? Hope, can you hear us? If you're speaking, we cannot hear you. I'm hoping because of time, I will come back to you. And if you can, you can also type your questions so that we can um, take it despite network issues. Um, so PK, someone is asking, I have been struggling with pornography and masturbation. I would only take like three more questions and I'll try to pick the most uh, sensitive. All questions here are like super important, but we don't have the luxury of time. But someone here is saying, um, I've been struggling with pornography and masturbation for a long time, for years. And I have tried several spiritual methods, fasting, prayer, but it's still a struggle and I'm still stuck. What do I do? Okay. Anonymous, of course. <laughs> uh, maybe that's one reason why it's still a challenge anonymous and I'm not saying because the question is anonymous mm. maybe your problem is anonymous maybe you haven't shared maybe you've not been accountable I can give you examples clear examples no, I'm not making this up but God bears me witness um, when it comes to things like this pornography and masturbation and other sins that are struggles it could even be same-sex attraction struggles or sex addiction for example these things you need to realize that these things thrive on ignorance and secrecy when i say ignorance i mean when you don't have the right knowledge on how to tackle these things you would stay in the problem. And if these things are kept secret, it will thrive. Sin thrives in darkness. When you expose it to light, it dies out. Um, I can give you examples of at least five people just within the past two months that have had, I call them victory, um, victory lab anniversaries, basically. And what that is, is where you've gone some distance, couple of months without defaulting one, and there's, there's utter transparency. I know someone who has clocked nine months. I know someone who has clocked 12 months, a whole year. I know someone who has clocked seven months. I know someone who has clocked three months. And every single anniversary is important. But how is there an anniversary? Because it was disclosed, it was shared, and they got the help that they needed. They had prayers, they had Bible study, they had aggressive follow-ups, uncomfortable conversations. Um, imagine, just imagine this, someone that you are, you know, you are accountable to just messages you and maybe the person has prayed for you. And that's how I used to catch a lot of people when I pray for them, just text you or call them. Something is up. Ah, PK, everything is fine. What is going on? Keep, I don't know. <laughs> you know, 
I mean, catch people for the Lord. Um, but the point is this accountability can be very intrusive, can be very vulnerable and uncomfortable, especially in moments where you feel weakest. But I'm telling you this, this is the formula to it, to get help. And the part of ignorance, I would say there is grace available. I need to be reminded that there is grace. You need to be reminded that you're not this slave to sin. Because how the things of the spirit work is that you are and therefore you can do. When the Bible says you're not this slave to sin, that in itself is the precedence for you to not go into sin. So you need to fill yourself with these things. A lot of times when people have these addictions, you need to give them the tools to fight the addictions. You need confessions based on the word of God. You need scriptures, things to help here. This is where the battle is. It's in the mind. You cannot take things out and leave them blank. You must replace them. And that's what this, these things help to do. So I know you said you you fasted. The person said you, you prayed. It's not just about the fasting. It's not just about the prayer. If you're not accountable, like actively, aggressively accountable, that you messed up today, you have someone you can talk to. And even before, especially before you mess up, when you feel like you're about to mess up, you reach out. It's uncomfortable. It's not the best feeling because you want to indulge in that moment, but you don't. That's how you're proving you're not a slave to sin. That's how you're proving that the desires of the Lord are more important than the desires of the flesh. And that's how you grow. But it works. It works. It works. It works. Countless examples of victory. Victory is real. But victory is not, is not, while victory is once and for all, victory is expressed on a daily basis. Mm. Sadly, because you've been exposed to these things, you will, and this is not a prophecy of, of doom. I was about to say prophecy of doom. <laughs> you will always brace yourself any temptation that you have you would have temptations in line with lust for the rest of your life i'm sorry just newsflash when you have temptations you would have lustful temptations because you've been exposed the same way someone who has not been exposed to smoking or drug addiction if you put drugs before them, then it's not really a temptation. It's not like, ah, please, no, take it away from me. Like, what's this? Because they've not been exposed to it. And so since you've been exposed to this, way, the temptations you have many times will come in this form. So it's, it's, a, it's an uphill battle. It's also a, a lifelong battle, but you can win every time. That's what I'm trying to tell you. You can say that today you are victorious and tomorrow you're victorious because in Christ, you actually are victorious. Mm-hmm. So the victory plays out on a daily basis. For some of the people that I, I keep accountable, I say, have a calendar, mark it. How are you doing per day? Mm. And then any day you make a mistake, which you shouldn't, but if you do, what were the things that led to it? Because some people, and this is how uncomfortable it can get, but it's also realistic. If somehow your, for ladies especially, if your hormones and when you are close to your period when you are ovulating is the time where you are at, at mostly at risk. You have to design a structure that fits into that. Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. If you know at this time of the month, this is where it's the, mo- is the worst and this is the major trigger for you. Build around this. What should you do? Don't stay at home all day. Um, have those prayer calls that time. 
like survive through that moment so that you have another month to win again and then you survive through that and you win again and you thrive through that do you understand if you issue a social media go on an internet fast basically what i'm saying is you can win you just need to be more accountable Mm. you need to be more accountable and you also need to be more informed this is how you win especially in, in in light of this uh, struggle that I'll say the grace of God liberates but you need need accountability for it thank you so much BK yes. uh, I thought we were going to be able to take more questions but like we've spent so much time BK how many questions can you answer in 10 minutes in 10 minutes we still have to go 10 minutes uh, you know let's just let, let's, let me just take one more I question. can take I can take two more questions two more questions and I'll be very quick I'll do quantity this time okay <laughs> okay so let's take hope's question hope says um jesus did it matthew 3 verse 15 what's the importance of getting baptized by water jesus did it to fulfill all righteousness is baptizing with water not to cleanse sin and come out being the new you so why do we need to baptize ourselves with water when jesus has done all of that for us by dying on the cross and we the believers having the consciousness can now walk freely knowing fully again that we don't live in sin okay so i'm going to say that uh that's a very good question and that means you're thinking a lot about things about scriptures it's very impressive um but just to talk about the the baptism of john that's what it was called the baptism of john the baptism of john was not merely a baptism of water it was an indoctrination um sometimes the word baptism can be used to describe indoctrination in the Bible talks about the baptism of Moses. Moses did not baptize with water, but he indoctrinated them with the law, right? So he baptized them. That's the Mosaic uh, uh, baptism. Uh, what John was doing was clear. What he said was this. Be baptized. Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. The point is this. He was not saying that by the water you'll be forgiven of your sins, that this water is holy water. No. He was telling them the word repentance is metanoia, which means to metamorphize your mind, to change your mind, to, to, to prepare your mind. He was telling them, repent, the kingdom of God is here. He was telling them to prepare, to ready your mind because the kingdom of God is here, which was the advent of the spirit that Jesus was ushering in. Do you understand? The gospel of salvation. So when people came, it was, the water was representative. It was a symbol of that, what he did when, when he, you die, you are buried and you are brought out. And you look at the picture of what happened to Jesus. It was very symbolic of what happened to us spiritually. And that's why you see a lot of, when you read Romans 6, you see the word baptism. When you read uh, Colossians 2, you see baptism used uh, in, in, in excess. The point is when you bring Jesus, when Jesus was brought in and baptized by John, he went in, right? He he was brought in and he died in in a, in a sense, was buried under the water and was brought back to life. And after that, the spirit of God descended upon him. Just like the picture of what we have when we die, when we are buried, when we are raised to with Christ, and the spirit of God moves in. So um, when Jesus to fulfill our righteousness, I believe it was not, we use that very loosely and say 
but to literally fulfill the requirements of what will bring righteousness to those who believe yeah. that this i'm going to represent this by baptism so the water never cleanses anybody and it will never cleanse anybody. if anyone tells you by sprinkling water on you or putting you in water you are forgiven that person is a liar And sadly, there's a church, which I'm sure you know, the Roman Catholic Church, that child will not be saved if it's just by sprinkling of water. What brings salvation is the one who believes and puts faith, you know? Whoever, whosoever believes will not perish, but have everlasting life. There's a place for belief. Um, in the church today, or in the early church, when people got baptized, what they were doing was when you actually believe, the water baptism happens after not before so it's not because you are baptized that you now are a believer you are a believer and then you are baptized you see it with the ethiopian eunuch and philip you see it with uh with cornelius and his household you see it with the jailer and paul so what happens is they believe the gospel and then they make an open proclamation uh in a symbolic way of what had happened to them spiritually it's a physical declaration of a spiritual reality um is it necessary into this church that's another question that you didn't ask if you want the answer to that <laughs> maybe the next time we'll have the time to dissect it but for now i would say the baptism of water necessarily was not what cleansed people from their sins but the spiritual implication of the death burial and resurrection of jesus and faith in that which causes this righteousness to be imputed to those who believe i hope that makes sense it does okay so, so what's your take on glory star's destiny i mean prayers like your star would shine your destiny will not be stolen is this correct is this a thing <laughs> oh my god um so let let me not make it comical i i want to believe that the people that say these things have a context of course, some people have no clue what they're doing. They're just rambling and making noise and saying your glory, your star. They're just replicating all they've heard. But in a sense, when you talk about glory, when you talk about destiny, when you say your destiny will not be cut short, um, many people are talking more about earthly destinations. The word destiny is obtained from destination. Mm -hmm. um, your star to represent... Um, the brilliance of your glory to represent um, heights that you can get to. Many of them use those metaphorically to represent levels you achieve in this life or places you're meant to go, where God wants you, your assignment. And so if you say nobody will steal your star or your, your destiny will not be cut short, I want to believe that the reason we are praying that is to say, look, you will not be in situations that would end your life prematurely or that would sway you away from God's plan prematurely or that all you're meant to achieve will not now be subjugated or hidden by your mistakes. That where you're supposed to be this evangelist or this apostle planting churches because you were distracted, you are just chasing a career that has no eternal value so uh, now this is me trying to explain you know explain for them and and you know do apologetics for them uh maybe that's what they mean of course they are careless prayers that have no bearing in scriptures where people say 
all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I get the idea. Glory, star, destiny. Before before now, three three maybe about three years ago, I was just dismissing and saying no, as heresy, that's falsehood. But I'm trying to understand that sometimes people um have the idea and the concept right, but the terminology and words used are just outright wrong. They're not biblical. So yeah, I, I believe that you can pray that the glory of the Lord is seen in your life. You can't pray that you shine brighter and brighter as a light in this dark world. You can't pray that all the assignments committed to you will be fulfilled because your destiny in Christ is settled. Your destiny in Christ is eternal life. That is settled. But your earthly assignments and the fulfillment thereof uh, can be prayed for, can be pursued in the place of prayer and devotion. So uh, that's what I would say about that. Thank you so much, Vicky. Thank you. I am super confident that this has been a blessing to you. Keep praying with it and let these words drive you to action to live in the fullness of the will of God for your life. Stick around for more. God bless you. I love you.